Oliver, thank you very much for joining us today. I want to, first things first, just go back to a younger you, shall we say. Let's say I'm going back and talking to Oliver, age 12, and saying to him, you know, just to let you know in the future, you're going to be associate editor and one of the, the hotshots at one of the biggest publications in the country and arguably the world. What would your reaction to that be? <laughs> um, I think I probably would have settled for that. Um, going back to that age, what I always wanted to do was write, which, um, you know, it's probably not the way to approach journalism, really, in that writing is the final 20% of what we do. And um, actually, the real sort of craft of journalism, whether it's columns or features or news, um, is the reporting, you know, the understanding stuff, speaking to people, interviewing, um, reading the background, uh, getting the color, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, what I loved at that age was sort of reading, writing, um, all that side of stuff. And um, yeah, that's where my my first love of of the word came from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll obviously dive into your into your career uh, as we go throughout the podcast. But just intrigued at that age, was it specifically business that you were looking at, or was business just happened to be kind of the outlet that you uh, you chose to write about? No, I was definitely not too fussed about business age twelve. Um, <laughs> I would say post university, uh, looking for journalism jobs, um, stuff came up on financial magazines and um i wasn't really too bothered about it i think like a lot of people who aspire to be journalists you sort of think you're going to do watergate straight away and um be a sort of big political journalist the minute you graduate but um you need to get a sort of foot in the door somehow and um starting out at a small trade mag i sort of learned, learned the ropes there and actually the more you get into it the more you realize how exciting it can be because you get huge numbers you know big money's at stake you get big egos sometimes uh, huge companies everyone knows they tend to be global um you've got the political element too uh you know big stories like um softbank arm or um you know cadbury craft they have huge numbers attached big drama lots of color so um it becomes a great vehicle for all kinds of journalism and you can tell a lot of stories via business i think you, know, you can tell social stories political stories people stories so um it's a great canvas to, to work with yeah, no, absolutely. What what would you have chosen at, at age twelve to write about? <laughs> Still going back to the, the twelve year old me. <laughs> uh, to, to be really honest, I, I I always loved fiction, so um, I probably would have dreamed of being a novelist one day, which may still happen one day. Um, and that was what I read definitely at that age. So it would have been, you know, I can't remember what it exactly was, aged 12. But um, I was always a big reader of fiction. And um, less so these days. I spend a lot of time reading, um, you know, journalism, long form uh, in terms of books. But, um, yeah, still enjoy a good novel. And, um, yeah, that's what I started out with. Yeah, excellent. And we, we will get onto your own uh, writing exploits uh, a little bit later on. But let's move off the the age 12 topic, shall we? Let's go into kind of a bit of an overview of your career. Um, obviously, we, we know where you've ended up, but tell us a little bit about the stops uh, along the way. Well, I graduated in 2005 with a degree in English and um, worked for a small newswire in Canary Wharf for a little while, uh, then went to... Um, Trade Mag, I mentioned money management, which is part of the FT business stable. Uh, then went to Investment Advisor, which was their uh, sister publication. Uh, then did a postgrad at City University um, in journalism, newspapers, and um, from then City AM, and then Sunday Times. Um, but it was a great, it was a great fun journey, and um, I really enjoyed the early stages. You know, being Trade Mag's City AM, scrapping for stories. 
um, learning the the craft, um, reading everything you could, trying to meet everyone you could. In some ways, the early days are very exciting because you, you don't know what's going to happen and um, it's all to play for and you've got to sort of claw your way up and try and get onto a national paper. And um, that, that stage was a lot of fun, but I arrived at the Sunday Times age 26, so I was still fairly young, started out covering commercial property there, um, then retail correspondent where I uh, met Philip Green, uh, then city editor, then biz editor, then uh, now associate editor. So, um, yeah, t- time has gone by pretty quickly, even though it's been a little while now since I, I graduated. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, again, just kind of sticking on, on the theme of, you know, kind of we know why you got into the business. You kind of mentioned that or the, the business side of things. But what was your kind of relationship with business before? Did you have any kind of entrepreneurial people around you maybe growing up? Was there, you know, wh- wh- what was that kind of background like when you were when you were younger? Yeah, not really entrepreneurial. Um, my dad worked for Barclays for many years. So I sort of occasionally heard his stories of work. Um, not really, I suppose I would have been 16 in the year 2000. So, um, the Blair era, I still remember very strongly. And, um, I think back then you had a government with a much more pro-business agenda, a much bigger relationship with business. And, um, you know, you had UK companies going out doing big deals. You had BP bought Amoco, uh, M&S was going to the US. Um, you know, you had... I think an era of British business being very sort of lively and colourful, which you would sort of read about in the press and things, and uh, plus a government that was pretty pro-business. You know, Peter Mandelson saying he was intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich brackets, provided they pay their taxes. And um, I, th- I think that was sort of the sort of backdrop. And then um, I left Union 05. Uh, we had two more years of that really crazy bull market before the credit crunch happened and then the financial crisis. So, um, and then I was, I was at city during the financial crisis doing my postgrad. So, um, again, that sort of formative time of being a, um, a student of journalism while all those, uh, huge world events are erupting around you. Um, it's quite inspiring and, um, it gives you a sense of actually when things really get interesting, this is how big stories can be. Uh, these are how epoch defining, uh, money and, business and finance can be to world events, world politics, people's lives. Uh, you know, the downturn we had in 09 and 2010, uh, recession caused by too much debt, the subprime meltdown, uh, the banking crisis. Um, so I think I was quite lucky to have certain periods of my life where um, it coincided with you know, business, politics, current affairs being very um, front and centre in national life. And then that gives you a sense of this is what I can do with these stories. Um, you know, if you get yourself in the right place and you meet the right people and you do journalism the right way, this is how exciting and engaging it can be. Yeah, because, I mean, again, following that kind of that kind of train of, of timeline, um, you know, you're straight into Brexit and then, you know, we've obviously had a little bit of turbulence since then and then COVID. Um, I mean, it's it's been quite an interesting career you've got there. I'm sure there's some some journalists maybe a little bit older than you that uh, didn't have as as, as much an interesting time kind of going up. But, you know, kind of let, let's, let's go back to those kind of key times and kind of, you know, Brexit with everything that was kind of swirling around. And, you know, that obviously gives you plenty of content. But like you said, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of political um, turmoil around that. Um, kind of covering that, if you reflect on it all these years later, um, h- how do you feel about that time in, in British history? Do you kind of reflect on it a little bit and be like, 
wow, there was a lot of misinformation and, you know, we, we, we could have done better as far as, you know, pol- politicians kind of letting us know all of the facts or, you know, how, how do you reflect on that time? Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I was, um, I was retail correspondent back then, so I had a limited input into what the paper thought about Brexit or wrote. I didn't have the column back then. Um, you know, I was, I, was, I was a reporter, so I had li- limited input into what the paper would have said and um, as a writer, actually limited input because retail you know, had its issues around shipping and um, supply chains, access to labour, those kind of points. But um, not really as crucial to the Brexit debate as, say, the car making industry or um, financial services. So, you know, looking back, the Sunday Times was pro-Brexit. Um, I didn't have any opportunity to influence that back then. Um, I think it probably came a bit too soon as bit too early in my career as an event for me to have any real um, sw- sway in the debate. Um, but I think you're right. There was lots of misinformation. Uh, with hindsight, would it have been better for the mainstream media to have been stronger about it? Potentially. I think um, quite a few people, not 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 singly at any individual publication, but um, tried to be very balanced and tried to put both sides. And then there was a bit of false equivalence around promoting arguments equally when you know, one side was a lot stronger than the other. Um, so there's a bit of that, I think, looking back. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, keeping along that uh, that same timeline, only a few years later, um, you know, you were, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, getting close to Sir Philip Green, um, and you ended up a few years later actually writing a book about it, um, Damaged Goods, the inside story of Sir Philip Green. I mean, give us a little bit of an idea of kind of how things were then, because, you know, you, you're, you're building this relationship with this man, you know, but even the reviews that he's he said about your book are absolutely hilarious. But, you know, that, that must have been a really, really pivotal kind of time dealing with such a big character. Um, and obviously, you know, writing a book as you did, that must have been, yeah, an interesting, uh, interesting period of your life. That's for sure. Yeah, it was. It was a great story. And um, it, it kind of goes to the heart of how the Sunday Times tries to do journalism, which is tell big uh, macro stories through people and um, draw out the personal drama and the human colour. And um, you think about the Philip Green story, really, if you're going to get techie about it, it's a story of yeah, high street collapse, uh, that structural shift from uh, physical to online and the huge disruption that caused. And, um, you know, Arcadia, Topshop, uh, all his brands, they were right at the centre of all that because he'd been so committed to stores and so sceptical about digital for so long. Um, so that's the kind of industry backdrop. And it was a way of telling that story about this destruction of the high street and um, the way these dinosaur, you know, once powerful brands were swept away. Um, but then you had this really um, compelling figure uh, at the heart of it all, um, you know, sort of market trader wit, um, hugely funny and um, forceful personality, um, very certain that he was always right. And um, we sort of met when I first became retail correspondent. It must have been around 2012, 2013. And um, we had a brief honeymoon where he sort of um, took me under his wing and introduced me to various people and connected me in the retail world. And um, the Sunday Times was his favourite uh, newspaper. So he had a special place for it and vice versa. And um, it started to unravel when he sold BHS for a pound in 2015. And um, BHS was the worst part of that high street empire he had. It was really losing money uh, year after year, being propped up 
by Philip Green in Arcadia. A big pension deficit, which he was keen to get rid of. And um, he sold it for a pound to an unsuitable guy, Dominic Chappelle, who's now in jail. And um, the story started there, and we started investigating and uh, pulling at at the string, and it unraveled. Um, We we had had lots and lots of funny interactions, but um, if I pick just one that gives you a sense of what he's like as a guy, we were arguing once. And um, you know, went round and round and round, and he stopped and he said, "Oliver, I wouldn't threaten you." And I said, "Philip, you've just threatened to throw me through an effing window." And he said, "You're the kind of gentleman I think likes to live on the edge. There's a small difference between edge and ledge, and that's all you've got to remember." And um, very good with those kind of one-liners, which um, alternating between that kind of thing and um, being quite threatening. It's quite quite effective as a negotiating tool, and um, you know, he, he's someone who really was outmoded as the whole you know algorithmic trading thing came along, and Boohoo and ASOS uh, maximized tech and early AI and you know uh, that side of things. But he um, he was a great example of someone who lived on his wits and um, thought about things in a very uh, old-fashioned human way, and. Um, we forget now for years those kind of people dominated the business world, didn't they? People who um, you know, had it in their heads and um, could do things on gut instinct. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm I'm quite intrigued to get your your thoughts on things because obviously Philip Green is known for being, like you said, a very big personality. Um, you know, there's still people around now that are very vocal. You know, Elon Musk is the the one that comes to mind the most, but it feels like there is a bit of a shift in kind of high level leadership to kind of just getting on with the job, not really making yourself a big, you know, almost target for, for various things. Uh, have you noticed kind of even in your in your tenure, um, you know, in journalism that there's almost a toning down in business as far as those big brash personalities? Yeah, definitely. I think that they're less acceptable in general across a whole range of things because um, that kind of behavior tends to go along with other things, doesn't it? And more uh, lacks workplace culture and um, everyone's so conscious now about um, being inclusive and um, you know, transparency um, but, but behaving in a certain way the whole time at work uh, right, rightly so um, so there's been I think a generation of CEOs come through who are much more uh, much lower ego uh, more collegiate um, more emollient in their style you, know, you look at Charlie Nunn at Lloyd's or um, Jakob Stausoma Rio Tinto um, these people running big organizations now are pretty low profile, low ego. And um, the, the, the sort of cult of the individual is is definitely on the wane. You're right to point out that it still survives uh, very strongly in tech. And I think um, you get these people where you get a bull market because um, you can get away with more in a bull market. And also bull market attracts these kind of characters and uh, entrepreneurs. So currently as tech, yeah, before that, there was mining, Ivan Glazenberg and um, Tom Albanese and these kind of characters. Um, and before that, we've had various cycles, you know, retail in the 90s, Philip Green, uh, media, Martin Sorrell. You know, you do get these kind of larger than life figures with very compelling stories. But they tend to come through, I think, in a bull cycle. Uh, so tech now and also you're right in general in corporate plc world it's very hard to get away with that now so um, where you do get them it's either big companies where they're run like private fiefdoms like facebook uh, like tesla or it's in the private world you know un- unlisted uh, venture capital so um yeah we, we do get fewer of them and it's probably um yeah in general better for staff but 
uh, worse for journalists because um you know these these kind of people make great stories and they're great vehicles to tell stories through and um they're full of color and um you know people like philip green always admire that he um he never went through pr people you know he was always direct to the journalist and um we know that's risky in many occasions but um it makes for more exciting copy yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm also intrigued about kind of, you know, a massive part of your your job is those relationships. And, you know, I'm sure you would have developed over time quite a good antenna for effectively what's bullshit and what's real. Um, how, how do you kind of, how quickly can you kind of meet with someone and be like, this person is actually a real deal. We need to watch this person versus there's just, there's just hot air behind this, this individual. Let's, <laughs> let's keep them a little bit at arm's length. Um, I think you can always tell quite quickly, can't you? I think um, it's not unique to me. I think most of us probably um, have a pretty good sense uh, within half an hour of meeting, meeting someone, what they're like. I suppose um, the difference in the business and political worlds is people often have a lot of cheerleaders around them and they can pay, you know, to a degree and buy that stuff in via PR and comms and um, lobbying. And so, um, you know, you often get people where there's a lot of noise around them which slightly obscures your judgment or, um, you know, sometimes you can aim off a bit when you know you're right in the first place because you hear a lot about someone. Um, so sometimes it's more about, it's more about knowing when to trust your judgment rather than actually having the judgment in the first place. If that makes sense. And then we all generally can sniff these things quite well. Um, it's just a case of sometimes cutting through the noise and, um, you know, re relying on your own judgment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, again, kind of, piggybacking on that same relationship kind of thread um you must have been around some absolutely exceptional leaders and i'm sure you have plenty of stories that you've kind of covered over the years of that real exceptional leadership and kind of you know figures particularly doing incredible things do, do any kind of stick in mind any that kind of go like people and business business leaders need to be more x yeah um I mean, you could cut it a few different ways, can you? There are, there are people you meet. It's a privileged job. Um, you get to meet some very interesting people. Um, and some of the sheer IQ you meet is um, is really interesting. You know, people like Stefano Pessina, uh, the guy who did the Boots and uh, Alliance merger and then um, sold the whole thing into Walgreens. You know, super bright guy, uh, very long-term, huge vision, a big contrarian. Uh, Daniel Kratinsky, uh, the Czech Sphinx with stakes in Sainsbury's and Royal Mail we interviewed at the weekend. Really um, bright, engaging guy. Again, a, a big contrarian. I mean, people like, um, you know, Bruce Flatt at Brookfield, uh, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone, visionaries who reshaped uh, financial services. Um, but you meet a whole range of interesting people. I mean, we saw um, Deborah Crew, the new boss of Diageo, this morning. Very personable uh great backstory there starts off in the u.s military now runs a huge consumer goods company um it's honestly really hard to pick a few because um you meet so many and um you know you meet people who uh impress you in different kinds of ways you can meet people who have great you know interpersonal leadership thing and um are very good at relating you meet great communicators uh you meet people who are really into the detail know their industry um you meet people who are sort of super bright on the financing side and financial engineering. You meet people who are, have the ability to cut across, you know, uh, receive wisdom and be contrarian and um, read the way things are going to go. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a whole spectrum. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, 
you meet certain CEOs who are right for their time as well. You, know, you meet CEOs who their style works in a certain period and then the mood changes and um, that kind of thing doesn't really work anymore. You know, you meet CEOs who are, at least in recent past, you know, um, very, very shareholder focused, uh, very, very uh, financial performance focused. And um, I think these days you have to have a few more strings to your bow in terms of uh, stakeholders and um society and uh showing you have a broader awareness i mean um someone like uh js jack the former rio tinto ceo is very popular among shareholders for many years delivered very good results and then had that disaster blowing up the um Jukan gorge aboriginal caves in western australia and um you know blew up his own career and the careers of several others uh, uh, rio in the process and um that's a very good example of something where um yeah the the, the s in esg um, came to the fore and um, suddenly when you get a crisis like that it can matter more than all the performance so um, I think I think certain certain CEOs have different uh, angles to their personality and skill sets and uh, it's very rarely you meet someone who can do all. Yeah no absolutely and sticking along that theme of ESG actually um, you know you, you get people such as you know Jordan Peterson who are very very critical of ESG uh, not necessarily of the idea of it but more of the execution the greenwashing and you know that that's very much a, a focus that he's kind of very vocal on um you know y- yourself obviously you know the, throughout your career there's been more of an importance i would say maybe in the last few years especially on the esg kind of agenda but how are you kind of finding it on the ground you know as far as people people in business are people still relatively you know positive about it behind the the scenes because you know our experience is that sometimes you do get a lot of people who public facing tend to be very much like ESG 100% it's good and then behind the scenes they just go it's actually a bit of a pain it's just a bit of a a money wasting exercise you know what have you kind of noticed with that yeah that tallies with with what I pick up I think um yeah to to, to your point about um Jordan Peterson people people don't tend to argue with the underlying aims of ESG. Like no one wants, or very few people want more pollution, worse societal outcomes, worse governed companies. But um, I think it's the way it's applied that's come to alienate people. And, um, you know, you get PLCs with 20 big shareholders all asking for slightly different interpretations of what ESG is. You still have no agreed um, real metrics around it, uh, even 10 years or have many years after it first uh, came into being. Um, you have a lot of siloing, so people only looking at one particular thing in an organization or um, even hiving off ESG into being an ESG director or an ESG part of the annual report. And um, my personal beef with it is that it's become quite reductive and quite box ticking and um, often doesn't really solve what it says it will. So, um, yeah, big energy company sells off its coal mines and says, right, we're now an ESG friendly stock. And it's like, well, in a very narrow sense, you've cleaned up your emissions, but the emissions are still there. In fact, they're probably going to get worse because you now sold them to some private equity firm who's going to run those coal assets harder. So there's lots of um, slides of hand, jiggery-pokery, people running around like headless chickens trying to appease uh, investor groups. And I think a lot of it has become either quite self-defeating or quite uh, pointless. So um, my, my personal thing is companies should bake, you know, good behavior into whatever they do and it shouldn't be an extra or some sort of separate category of 
thing you have to think about. You know, you shouldn't have to have a ESG section of your um, board meeting or of your annual report because, um, you know, whatever you do, you should be thinking, well, what's the balance between the financial impact of this and the societal impact? Um, what's the reputational damage we might do by um, moving towards X, Y, Z? You know, it's um, it's all part of the same picture, isn't it? And you can't, I don't think, hive these things off into separate sections or um, solve them by, you know, ticking things against a grid uh, to meet certain requirements. And I think um, ESG as a sort of movement and as a way of doing things has become quite reductive and um, probably has almost started to become irrelevant already because a lot of companies now roll their eyes and say, well, you know, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, so I think... Yeah, the investment community really needs to formulate some new way of looking at this. Um, and so do companies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And let's go back to the original timeline that we're kind of going across. The next big thing that really comes across that is is the COVID pandemic. Now, let's go back to kind of March 2020. You know, obviously for yourself, there is definitely so much going on in the business world to cover, but also personally and as far as a publication, I'm sure there must have been a lot of kind of chaos behind the scenes trying to figure out the best way to do things. Just kind of take me back a little bit to that that March 2020 and kind of your your thinking and your mindset around that and kind of, you know, getting the scoops that you normally get, but also kind of managing your own house. How, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah, busy. Um Sunday papers in particular rely on going out and seeing people and um, doing the reporting. And, um, you know, we have the luxury of a week to, to produce stories in. But the flip side of that is you need to produce new stuff and you can't just repeat what's out there in the daily papers. So um, you have to use that week to find exclusive new content, basically new stories, new angles, uh, scoops. And when the whole world shuts down overnight, um, that part becomes a lot harder, although you do have the huge events, right? So um, you're robbed of your sort of bread and butter day-to-day -day stuff, but you do have earth-shaking events to get your teeth into. So you can do big, you know, two-page spreads about uh, gyrations in markets and, um, you know, potential nationalization of assets and um, you know, airlines in crisis, uh, furlough scheme being cooked up, uh, companies being bailed out, B bills, C bills, all that kind of stuff. So um, it was a time of really big macro drama, not a lot of micro in terms of interactions. But um, the paper, you know, it, people sort of adapt to the new reality quickly, then. And um, we were all working at home for the first few weeks. We all had remote stuff to log in. Uh, it's very difficult putting together a physical product remotely because uh, really being there with designers, looking at spreads, looking at pictures, headlines, that kind of stuff, still quite a sort of. Um, a physical thing in the end, even if we are doing more and more digitally. Um, within a few weeks, I think it was, um, section heads were allowed to come back in. So the editor and uh, people running sections were allowed to go back to, into the office and um, even coming in and um, yeah, having my Pret and whatever it was, supermarket lunch and just kind of having a routine felt like quite luxury. Uh, you realize how lucky you are to have like freedom to go and do stuff. And um, I really hate being at home. Uh, I did the book at home and three months, three months of that was enough. Um, I like being out and doing stuff and seeing people. And um, I think it gives you a nice sort of pattern to your day. And um, so the minute I could come back in, I was uh, ditto our team actually on the business section. Um, but it was quite a draining time, wasn't it? It was um, very uncertain. Everyone doing stuff via Zoom, which is quite tedious. Uh, and yeah, not, not seeing people for the usual meetings is, um, 
yeah, it was challenging. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, kind of reflecting again, you know, we have to talk about politics when it comes to COVID, um, you know, hindsight being 2020 and everything. But what, what was your kind of view three years later on how the government kind of handled things as far as furlough goes and like you mentioned, sea bills and, and, and various uh, kind of things that they put in place. How do you kind of reflect on that? Because it, it is a difficult job that they had, but what, what, how do you think they did? Um, the first lockdown, I suppose, was probably unavoidable in that the rest of the world was doing it. And um, we didn't understand what COVID was really or when the, when vaccines might arrive, although you do look at Sweden and think, well, actually, they have the sort of the bravery to go alone. But um, first lockdown, you can kind of forgive, even if it was policed in a very excessive way. Um, you know, what's come out since about Downing Street around Boris Johnson's not a surprise, is it? although it is, uh, you know, woeful the way that was being run. Um, furlough, I think, was if you're going to have lockdown, you need to have some kind of job support scheme. So furlough was a good thing, and it probably saved the jobs market in terms of the bloodbath that could have happened. Um, uh, I think B-bills, C-bills, there was then too much pumped in beyond furlough, uh, too much sort of liquidity from the government pumped into private markets. That definitely helped fuel inflation coming out of COVID. And I think the second and third lockdowns, it were a mistake probably. We should have learned ways of doing things in the first lockdown, um, learned ways of moderating uh, contact in case of a sort of lockdown light next time. But um, I, I, I thought the second and third lockdowns were mistakes and um, it, the whole thing sort of went on far too long. And um, you know, I think a lot of the pressures we're having now around inflation, um, you know, work from home, uh, city centres being uh, not what they were, um, you know, strange patterns of working, going out, that kind of stuff. It dates down to being locked down for too long. And um, I think it's, it's, it's you know, look at the education system, the impact on kids, healthcare, the huge backlogs and operations. You know, there's still a legacy we're working through from COVID, which has been very negative. So um, I think the whole the whole thing went on too long and was, you know, you know the government living hand to mouth day to day no plan muddling through being bounced around by scientists and pressure groups and um it was all a bit dysfunctional yeah no, absolutely and obviously as we sit here now it's it's three years since uh the the pandemic the kind of beginning of it that's for sure but you know if we go back to again that really turbulent time we had in 2008 um some incredible businesses came out of that you think of uber you think of airbnb and you know three years later we're already seeing some rather interesting changes um that are coming quite quickly and there's a few businesses that are really kind of stepping out of the the shadow of what should be a very very difficult time are there any kind of success stories that you're seeing at the moment that you just go you know what there's business community is actually pretty incredible the way that they've managed to, you know, pivot and change things as quickly as, as they have. Yeah. I think going back to what you said earlier, um, you know, the, the pace of events has sped up since 2016, hasn't it? And, um, yeah, think back to the, the, the great moderation of the, um, you know, new labor years or, um, the early years of the, the, the Cameron coalition, um, and post 2016, it's been coming harder fast, hasn't it? A political turmoil, um, and then COVID, um, and now the other side of it, inflation and um, economic problems. I think, um, you know, it's funny, isn't it? The tech industry has gone through its bust in the past couple of years. Interest rates have risen. Valuations have slumped. Huge layoffs in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. 
I think the explosion of AI coming through, um, you know, it's a point in time where it's post-pandemic, post-lockdown, um, still got inflation roaring away. There's a huge amount of uncertainty, isn't there? And um, a lot could change in the next few years. But I just think we're only at the cusp of even glimpsing what AI is going to do to productivity and um, the menial tasks they're going to get outsourced to it in white-collar jobs, the research tasks, um, you know, all the sort of admin stuff. Um is, is quite amazing. And, um, yeah, the speed is happening. People are concerned about job losses, aren't they? But I think, look at most innovation over history, uh, it has pushed humans higher, higher up the value chain, doing more interesting stuff. And um, AI will end up taking away some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the donkey, donkey work that underpins what we do. So um, I think there's huge opportunities there. And um, you know, you'll see in journalism as much as anything else, you'll see um, people being able to do a lot more with their time yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of those things that is incredibly, uh, you know, quoted pretty much everywhere is that Goldman Sachs uh, study that 300 million jobs are going to be replaced, um, which, you know, it's an interesting time that we're, we're heading into, because like you said, there's some people who are very, very cautious of it, very scared of it. But there's a lot of people who go, this is actually a great thing. When you think of historical precedent, you know, you've got the industrial revolution, uh, etc. But I mean, you know, certain jobs that, you know, we have now didn't exist 10 years ago. And you know, there's the future of work, uh, Institute of the Future of Work, who say that 80% of the jobs that will be around in 10, 15 years time don't exist today. So, you know, we're going through an interesting time in history. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, at least Western governments have shown during COVID, they aren't going to let people just get thrown on the scrap heap in the way they might have been 20, 30 years ago. So even if you do get a huge disruption in a very short period of time and loads of white collar job losses, which I think is quite unlikely, um, I think, yeah, things have changed, haven't they, with furlough, with COVID, with lockdowns, um, with the tax burden, with public services where they are. Um, people aren't going to accept pain on the scale that previous tech disruptions might have brought. And um, I think you're going to see people nursed through into the new reality. And um, hopefully the other side, as you say, there'll be a lot more jobs created. Um, but, I mean, in, in journalism, it's, it's going to be quite exciting, I think, because... Um, you know, all the sort of tedious stuff that um, people did, well, still do now, you know, some of the sort of stock market write-ups and, um, yeah, the back-end research on things. The ability to outsource that quickly and, um, you know, g- gather huge amounts of information very quickly is going to be brilliant. And you think back to how even 20 years ago you wanted to get, you know, everything a newspaper had written about, whatever it was, drug legalization. You had to go into the physical library room, attach to the newsroom, go through yellowing newspaper cuts, folder after folder after folder on different topics and find the right one, bring it through, you know, two hours of digging around probably for a junior, handed to the reporter, sort of four hours to go through it all. And now you use Factiva or whatever tool it is and you can skim through every published word ever in sort of 10 seconds and um, find what you want. So um, I think... We, we take for granted already how much easier our lives are based on tech in journalism. And yeah, the ability to sort of find phone numbers very easily, uh, find old cuttings, uh, find data, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it saved a lot of time and it's sort of made, made the job a lot more enjoyable in many ways because you can focus on what matters. So hopefully AI will do a similar thing. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, just kind of final kind of thread on this, I guess, is kind of looking at that political side of things. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned the 2000 government and, and, and uh, Lord Mandelson, for example, being very pro-business. Um, you know, how do you kind of see things now? And, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of political uh, upheaval and local election results are kind of, if that's anything to go by, we could look at a change of government in the next 12 months or so. Um, you know, how are you kind of seeing things in the, on the political uh, landscape? Um, you know, how much more does the government need to do to kind of help investment? When you think about the, 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 difficult, uh, the difficulty that the London Stock Exchange are going through, for example, a lot of companies delisting, um, you know, how, how much political intervention should we be seeing? And do you think they're, they're dropping the ball a little bit? I think on the stock exchange, people have woken up to it. It's it's the the old thing, isn't it? About um, yeah, gradually and suddenly, it's reached that tipping point where um, people can't ignore it. I think there's no um, silver bullet on that though, and it's it's not easy to see um, what any one you know, government or group can do in the short term. Yeah, there's, there's cultural things underneath there as well, which is partly why companies are leaving to the US. Um, I think more more broadly, I've, I've written about it a few times. Yeah, if you think about competitiveness and um, government and business and what government should do. Um, I don't think we can compete firepower. Well, we can't compete firepower-wise with the US, you know, $370 billion of um, subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and we shouldn't be, you know, sitting in a control room somewhere trying to pick every winner. But um, what you can do is set tram lines and um, try and create a, a fertile environment for things to grow in. And, um, you know, having predictable taxes, not having windfall taxes, um, you know, sorting out business rates. Um, those, those kind of things would help you know, having better planning, quicker decision-making. Um, you know, that, that would help as well. Um, more stable regulation. But there are certain things that the UK has got a lot of goodwill towards it, I think. And um, there are certain things any government could do to, just create a more stable backdrop for companies to invest in. On the political front, I think, um, I mean, Brexit has been very bad for the Tories in all kinds of ways, hasn't it? But um, on business, it's really pulled them apart from that core constituency. And um, because so many big companies were opposed to leaving the EU, uh, you've had the sort of infamous F business policy under Boris Johnson. And um, that really has typified how the party or swathes of it have thought, have thought about business over the past uh, seven years. And Labour you can see have really stolen the march on the Tories and seen a lot of potential in, um, you know, wearing out the shoe leather, doing meetings, doing their smoke salmon offensive, as they call it. And they've made real inroads there. And I think they've gathered a lot of policy ideas from business as well as reassuring business. So it's been quite, quite fruitful for them. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, still all to play for next election wise i don't think the tories have lost it yet by any means and labor haven't won it or sealed the deal yet by any means but um i think if you speak to most most business people they're pretty frustrated by the combination of sclerotic planning no no strategy on house building um taxes all over the place um general lack of interest in business no coherent response to the inflation reduction act or the european equivalent yet um, it's a pretty confused picture. I think Rishi Sunak does get it. He comes from that financial background, background of hedge funds. Uh, Jeremy Hunt is an entrepreneur, or formerly was, and he gets it as well. And uh, you know, it's several years of of huge damage to try and repair in a short space of time, and um, a cabinet of mixed abilities, and um, 
yeah, a cabinet slightly pointy in different directions. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to bring you the Good News Postcard. Oliver, today your question comes from Erica, aged 10. Hi, my name is Erica and I'm a student from St Anne's Academy. What is your your favourite ever Good News story? Well, I'll ask your journalist's favourite Good News story. Um, Thank you for that, Erica. Um, let me mull for a minute. Well, there was a guy recently, um, I'm quite interested in, uh, we mentioned AI and tech and how it's changing things. And, um, I think we, we didn't mention medicine and, um, the, the advances it could, it could help there, but there's a story recently about a guy, um, who had some terrible spinal injury, um, thought he wouldn't walk again. Doctors said he definitely wouldn't. There was no sign of recovery in, in months and years. And um, he's recently had some sort of device implanted where he can send brain signals uh, to his legs again via some kind of AI transmitter. Uh, I admit you're catching me on the stump here, so I, I can't quite remember te- technical details. But basically, um, he, within a few days of having this thing implanted, he was sort of moving his legs around, able to take tentative steps again, um, thanks to this technological breakthrough. And I think... Um, it's very exciting to think about what could happen in the next 10, 20 years if tech is used for the right things. Um, you know, if things like AI are applied more to medicine, um, what we could do. So I, I would choose that. Absolutely. That's a great answer to a great question. That's that's for sure. Um, Oliver, you've obviously, you know, interviewed a lot of uh, business leaders and entrepreneurs throughout your time. And, you know, we are business leaders. So we have to ask what to you makes a great business leader? Leaving aside industry knowledge for a minute, because I think it helps if you have a real granular understanding of your business and if you can feel it in an entrepreneurial way so you know the rhythm of how that sector works, you know, the, the flows back and forth and uh, the customers, all that kind of thing. But leaving that to one side, um, I think a clear vision is the starting point. So, you know, you have to have a clear understanding of the business, uh, the industry you're working in and where you want to go. And ideally within that, you sort of read where that industry is going to go in the next five, 10 years, and you try and position yourself in a way that you can take advantage of the trends that are coming towards you. Um, and then I think the ability to, to communicate is underrated sometimes. But once you have that clear vision, can you communicate it internally in a way that engages uh, staff or colleagues, as they're, they're called now, and in a way that galvanizes the organization towards um very clear goals and can you communicate it externally in a way that um yeah builds trust with stakeholders lenders investors uh politicians regulators community groups um i think those two things over the years will be standout qualities i've seen in people can can they have a clear vision and be very very certain of where they're going um and two can they then communicate that in a way that's effective to various people and um, it sounds quite simple, just listen, listing those two things. I think actually getting it working in harmony is very, very difficult. And um, being consistent and authentic um, while also sort of managing through the nuances and slight roadblocks you're always going to hit is quite hard. But I think those, those are two qualities I'll pick out of um, all the various uh, leaders I've interviewed over the years as um, most of the standout guys, um, you know, from from sort of discount retailers to 
uh, energy giants um, have have those in common. Yeah, I know that's again a, a fantastic answer. Really appreciate that, and thank you so much for your time today, Oliver. Well, our final kind of question for you is: Do you have any final words for our business leader audience? Um, I think we talked about the pandemic and recent challenges and Brexit and inflation and cost of living crisis and the fact that these things have sped up in recent years. Um, I think UK PLC in particular has shown itself to be very adaptable, very nimble, very resilient. Um, and CEOs and founders and entrepreneurs uh, and leaders have shown themselves to be very um, dynamic and flexible and um, able to cope with all manner of disruption and headwinds coming towards them. So I think um, it's, 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 it's to keep on channeling that, isn't it? And um, yeah, there's still plenty of goodwill towards the UK around the world. We can sometimes forget that in the UK, reading and in our case, writing a lot of fairly gloomy headlines about the state of the economy, state of politics, um, the health of consumers. But actually, you go around the world, everyone has their issues. Um, I interviewed Bruce Flatt of Brookfield recently, the guy who built that big investment uh, empire. And I asked him a similar question. And he said something like, um, you know, you go to different countries around the world, everyone has their five complaints. And they all complain about them the whole time. And you're doing it here just like everyone else is. But um, if you put your head down and keep doing business and um, keep the faith, um, it'll all be fine. And that might sound a bit glib, but I think there's something in that. There's um, a natural uh, positivity and energy to the UK business world, which is um, not to be bettered against. Mm-hmm.